following are some summaries of the titles and some of the content of news articles concerning the family. Court in Ohio ruled in favor of a teenager who applied to have gender reassignment surgery, nullifying the rights of the parents who denied um, the teenager that request and reassigning those rights to grandparents who committed to allowing the, the teenager to go ahead with it. A Canadian father, in recent months, was found guilty of family violence for opposing a teenage daughter who wanted to have the same procedure. In Time magazine, uh, one news article was titled, I didn't assign a gender to my kid, it's up to them to decide what identity fits them best. Quote, we weren't going to assign a gender or disclose their reproductive anatomy to people who didn't need to know, and we were going to use gen general, uh, gender, neuter, gender neutral pronouns, personal pronouns, they, them, and their. We imagined it could be years before our child would tell us in their own way if they were a boy or a girl or non-binary, or if another gender fit them best. Until then, we were committed to raising our child without expectations or restrictions of the gender binary. Another article coming out of Iowa. An Iowa bill would require schools to tell parents before lessons that talk about sexual orientation. And the purpose of this article was basically to talk about how harmful that is for people of LGBTQ plus interests. Um, now the bill itself was really just notifying parents when those lessons would come. It wasn't requesting approval or anything like that. It didn't give them an appeal process. It was really just for notification. But even just that notification in the minds of um, this, uh, the, the writer of this article was, was unheard of and unthinkable because they felt that that would infringe upon the rights of LGBTQ persons. And another article, and there were, there were a number of articles along the same lines referencing multiple states, but New Jersey classrooms require LGBTQ lessons. And so there's a whole, there's a whole curriculum now being developed um, that is intended to teach children at varying ages um, to really to indoctrinate them, to help them to understand um, these things a little bit better, whether parents agree with it or not. As we've been working through this series on developing a biblical worldview, have often reminded us that a worldview is the lens or framework by which we make sense of life. It is like a set of lenses or glasses that we look through in which color all of what we see in the world around us. Everyone has a worldview. That worldview informs us, informs our understanding of the world and compels us to interact with the world and with the information that we're presented in a particular way. That's why two different people, perhaps even two different people in the same country, two different people in the same culture, even two different people in the same home, can read some of the news articles that I reference and either affirm or deny its contents as valid. We all own our worldview, whether we acknowledge it or not, and it comes out in what we affirm. 
One thing I hope this series has helped to encourage in you is the ability to think critically about the worldviews that are being communicated to us daily because they are being communicated to us. Whether it is a news article that you read online or a news uh, report that you, you see on the evening news that you watch. Maybe it's a, a movie or a book that you're reading. All of those things are communicating a certain kind of worldview. And we have to think critically as believers. It is our responsibility, our obligation to think critically, to think actively, and to think biblically about the world around us and the messages that are being communicated. Paul says in Colossians, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. That's our responsibility. He wrote that to the church, not just to the leaders but to every member of the church. It is our responsibility to see to it that we are not being taken captive through philosophy and empty deceit, the philosophies of the world around us. When you listen to those articles and others like them, when you listen to the news in the evening, when you hear stories about same-sex marriage, about abortion, about adoption, about the government's role in providing sex education to youth, about the outrage of the society at parents who disagree with their children going through various forms of gender reassignment, surgeries, or, or whatever they may be. What do those things communicate about the worldview that's being offered? I mean, what is the family, really? What does it consist of? What role do parents actually have in the lives of their children? What should they or shouldn't they be teaching their children, biblically? There's a lot that we could unpack on this subject. I mean, what does the Bible actually say from a Christian worldview perspective about the family? I think we'll find a good answer to that in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, which is where we will be this morning. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't. I'm going to read that passage for us, and then we'll pray and, uh, and begin. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the time we have together. Thank you for the opportunity we have gathering together as your people around your word, your promises, as we have the opportunity to remind one another of your word, your promises, as we sing songs of praise together, songs, hymns, spiritual songs that remind us of your truth, as we pray together, pray in reminder of your truth, in celebration of your truth, responding to your truth, requesting for you to act based upon your truth. God, as we have the opportunity as members of one another to gather, to encourage each other, especially as we think about this topic on the family, as we, as members who have different households and represent different households, have the ability to encourage one another as we seek to live our lives as believers with the with a, with a worldview of, of follow, as followers of Christ, 
as we seek to encourage one another to continue to follow Christ, to obey His Word, to seek to glorify Him, to teach the next generation, for the next generation even to learn to respond to the Word of God in obedience. And Lord, we know that all of those things you've designed, you've designed our body that way, you've designed the family that way, so that it might be a testimony to the watching world around us of who you are of your goodness, of your holiness, of your truth. We pray that you would make all those things true of us. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, Pastor Chris is leading us through a new series in the book of 1 Timothy. Ephesians is kind of a complementary text to 1 Timothy. If Timothy is Paul's perspective on the church directed to its leadership, Timothy being the one charged with helping to organize the church to establish it well as a pillar in support of the truth, Timothy being from the perspective of the church leadership, Ephesians is addressed to the church itself, to the individual believer within the church who becomes a part of the church by faith and is to be a functioning member of the church. What is the role and responsibility of a functioning member of the church? Paul addresses that in Ephesians. As we get to our section for study this morning, Paul digs in on the responsibilities of members of the body of Christ with respect to their family, to their home life. Really, from chapter 5, verse 22 through 6, 9, that's what he covers. In 5, 22 through 33, Paul addresses wives and husbands. In our section, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, children and parents. And then in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, slaves and masters. And the general idea there is that in larger homes, in most homes, there would be servants who would be working to help support the needs of the family. He addresses them in that order, I believe, communicating a certain priority of the various relationships in the home, the relationship between husbands and wives being central and so given more attention and prominent attention in that list. And also, if you notice in each segment, segment, he addresses in order of role, those being subject, being addressed first. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. And then he addresses the need for those to whom they are subject, also to honor them through their authority. Husbands, love your wives. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Masters, do the same, meaning care for your slaves with a sincere heart, knowing that Christ is your master, and stop threatening them. So God cares about both sides of the relationship. Again, these are all addressed to the Christian congregation, to believers, to those who have submitted themselves to Christ, to those who ultimately submit themselves to His will and desire for the family, to those with a distinctly Christian worldview. That's why all of what he says in this section would drive the world around us crazy. These exhortations to believers are not threatening at all. They're helpful. They're necessary. We looked at a purpose statement in 1 Timothy for the book, declaring that the church is to be, again, the pillar and support of the truth. Thus, how it operates is important. In Ephesians, something akin to a purpose statement is found at the end of chapter 3. To him, to God, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. The church is to be what it is to be because the church existing and functioning the way it is each member functioning the way it ought to, each member living in a way that honors the Lord, seeking to build up the church by using its gifts, etc., brings glory to God. It glorifies God. 
God desires to be glorified in his church. And that's the idea. He desires to be glorified in his church. He declares his purposes for his church, his purposes for the families who make up the church. And these purposes, again, are being spelled out in this passage. And it's for the church to respond obediently, with humility, trusting that God's way is the right way, regardless of what the world around us says. Now again, there's so much more from a Christian worldview perspective that we could cover from these texts, but we'll stick to the parent-child relationship in our section this morning. In our passage, we learn that it is the will of God that a Christian home be a place where children obey their parents in obedience to the Lord, and parents raise their children in the instruction of the Lord. Again, a Christian home, a home where Christians form the core of the family, I'll get back to that in a second, in a Christian home, it should be a place where children obey their parents in obedience to the Lord, where parents raise their children in the instruction of the Lord. That makes the outline pretty simple, right? Verses 1 through 3, children obey their parents in obedience to the Lord. Verse 4, parents instruct your children in the ways of the Lord. Let's look at that first point. Children obey your parents in obedience to the Lord. In verses 1 through 3, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. The focus, again, is on the Christian home. To make sure that we're clearly defining our terms here, what makes it a Christian home is that there are Christians who form the primary core of the family. The parents are the core of the family. The family starts with them. A family expands and grows with children. Thus, if parents are Christians, members of the body of Christ, then their home could rightly be called a Christian home. Now, the term Christian home is not biblical, so we can't press that idea too far. I merely use it to clarify the context. There are Christians in the church at Ephesus, and the focus of this passage is their home life. I should also mention here, this text doesn't qualify whether or not the children are believers. There is, in fact, no way that it could because there's no guarantee that a home which has parents for Christians will necessarily have children who are Christians. Each person is responsible to respond to the Lord affirmatively by faith for salvation. Salvation is not passed through some family lineage. Just because a child grows up in a Christian home, is taken to church, goes to Sunday school, has a Bible with their name on the cover, goes to Awana faithfully, or even has a parent who serves as an elder or deacon, it doesn't guarantee their salvation. John gets to the heart of this in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Speaking of Jesus' coming into the world, the Word of God made flesh who himself gives the right to become children of God to those who, he says in verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus alone gives salvation. He gives the right to become children of God, and he gives it only to those who receive him. In the text, it says, who believe in his name. Those who have faith. The text says it is not to those who are born of blood, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man. Being born of blood, your lineage will not save you. Being born of the will of the flesh or the will of man, your parent or anyone else's wishes for you will not save you. You must be born of God. You must be born again. You must be born, as Jesus says to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John, you must be born from above. You must have that new birth. 
being born from above, a new birth, a new life is given to you by the Lord Jesus only if you believe in Him, trust in Him, submit your life to Him. There is no other way. God will not accept you in any other way into His heaven but that way, the way He's provided through the Lord Jesus. Do not believe in the Lord Jesus. You are not a Christian. You do not have eternal life. You will not get into God's heaven. As cute and cuddly as children are, this applies to them as well. I have children, in case you're wondering, I've made that very clear to them. You must believe in the Lord Jesus to be saved. There's no fast track, no easy track, no all roads lead to heaven. Sincerity doesn't matter. If you don't have faith in Jesus, you will not get in. Back to our text in Ephesians 6, again, there's no qualifier for this exhortation that children refer to here are Christian. This exhortation to children doesn't require that they be believers. Certainly it would be easier if they were, since they would have the help of the Holy Spirit who's given them for that reason. It would be easier for them to respond in obedience to the Word of God, but it's not required. God's desire and God's design for children in the context of the family, and particularly here in the context of a believer's family, God's design is that children be obedient to their parents. I'll say that this is also to be understood as a general quality of their relationship to their parents. God is not demanding perfection. Certainly a broader biblical understanding of the nature of sin, of humanity in general, would make it clear that this is not perfection, because we never live up to that, we never make it. But generally speaking, children should be obedient to their parents. He says, for this is right, this is the right thing, this is the will of God, it is right. There are right things and there are wrong things. It is right for children to be obedient to their parents. That should be the quality of their relationship to their parents. Again, not to their grandparents, not to their friends, not to the government, certainly not to their own inward desires. They are to be obedient to their parents. It's nice that their grandparents can get them in line, right? Snap a finger and, you know, they respond well there. But they should be obedient to their parents. It's nice that when they go to school, they, they get good grades and they generally listen to their teachers and they do what they're supposed to do. But if they come home and they live like hell, that's a problem. There's the obedience to their parents. In case anyone was wondering, obedience means just that. Obedience. A command is given, the command is obeyed. Instruction is given, instruction is followed. A parent's will is provided, that will is honored. That's it. Now ultimately we have to say that obedience to any authority ordained by God is subject to God's will. Right? I made this clear in previous messages when we talked about our submission to governing authorities. We submit to any God-ordained authority because it is God's will. But we ultimately recognize that God's will supersedes that authority because he's the one over that authority. And he's the one who's granted that authority. So if it ever comes down to obeying earthly authority that asks us to do something that contradicts the clear command of God, we must obey God rather than men. So in the context of our passage, if children are required or requested to do something that clearly disobeys the command of God, they must obey God rather than men. But those would be exceptions, not the rule. The general rule is that children are to be obedient to their parents because this is right in the sight of God. Well, how do we know that it's right in the sight of God? Look again at the text. This is not a new command. This command has some age to it. It has some history. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Paul comments. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Paul is here quoting from the Old Testament law. 
There's often a very strict dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. But those distinctions are unwarranted. Many of the truths in the New Testament are rooted in the Old Testament, either in principle or by direct quotation. This would be an instance of the latter. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy. Again, the second giving of the law, Moses says in chapter 5, verse 16, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This has always been in the mind of God concerning the family. This has always been his will for children within the family, which is why, though we're not under the Old Testament law, Paul freely repeats the same admonition for the believer in the New Testament. And we find ourselves in a similar context as they, right? Israel was again going into the land where they had to drive out these pagan nations, where they'd ultimately be surrounded by these unbelieving pagan nations. The law was God's means of drawing a distinction between his people and all the other people groups around them. God gave the law so that his people would be protected from his holiness, first and foremost, as he dwelt among them. And he gave them the law so that they would be distinct and different from the other peoples around them. Likewise, in our day, we live among unbelievers. They see us proclaiming our distinctness, often in ways that confuse godliness and morality, but they see us and they're watching. What they ought to see is a distinctness that reflects the distinctness of God. A godliness not merely in what repulses us, which is usually where we get trapped in conversation, right? Talking about the things that are distasteful to us. But not a godliness that merely in what, in what repulses us, but more in what drives us as we seek to honor the when the world sees children who are under control being obedient to their parents, especially today, that stands in stark contrast to the ways of the world. People are often surprised when children are under control, responsive, obedient, respectful. Nowadays we see the exact opposite. The worldview around us would see the following as normative. We would see children who blatantly reject their parents' authority. Ultimately, all authority being argumentative, fighting, cursing, ignoring their parents' authority, even taking them to court in order to get their way, if necessary. We see children who disregard their parents' wisdom concerning their life and practice, concerning basic realities of our existence, such as gender and sexuality, in favor of their peers, some celebrity, or general popular opinion of how the world works, or even the government's influence in their we see these same children growing up to be young adults and adults who increasingly need counseling or some form of psychotherapy, who are growing up dependent on affirmation they receive on social media, who are otherwise increasingly identifying themselves according to their sexuality or political preferences. Character no longer really matters. It's my preferred personal pronoun that matters, or my political party. We see these same children growing up thinking that it's all about me. There's no reason to consider others beside me. I have my truth, my reality. Again, I document all of my truths and my realities on my, my social media bulletin boards, right? Wake up in the morning and I had toast for breakfast with avocado <laughs> toast. Um, and uh, you know, I post a little picture up to let everybody know about it. And everything else that happens throughout the course of my day, I have to post it to make sure that you know what's going on in my life. <laughs> So that's what's important. 
you see these same children growing up believing that true freedom is found apart from the thought and opinion of the God of heaven to whom they're ultimately accountable. When Paul speaks of those who are given over to a debased mind, having seen fit to disregard God in their lives, one of the characteristics of those persons is that they're disobedient parents. Romans chapter 1 verse 30. Likewise, 2 Timothy 3, 2, when Paul speaks of the last days, that they'll be full of difficulty. He says that people will be lovers of self. I feel like this is just Paul taking a look at what's going on in the world today and commenting. But this wasn't written today. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, right. having the appearance of godliness denying its power. A child's obedience to their parents is not an afterthought in the mind of God. God makes it clear what he expects from children to obey their parents, to be in submission to their parents. Children are to see their parents' authority as binding upon them, to see their submission and obedience to their parents' authority as the primary way that they show their obedience to God. Because that's the issue. In fact, back in our text, Paul goes on to emphasize the significance of this in the eyes of the Lord as he comments, this is the first commandment with a promise. Typically, a command is just that. Do this, don't do that. This command, this command to children, adds a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Again, in the context of the Old Testament passage that this is quoting, Moses was just about to take the generation of Israelites into the promised land. They were finally going to enter into this land that had been promised to their people by God. This was the promise, and they were on the verge of receiving the promise. Their heart's desire was to dwell in the land that was promised. And another promise was given to them as the law was being repeated. Honor your father and mother. In the context of Ephesians 6, a child honors their parents by obeying their authority. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. That is purpose. If you honor your father and mother, then it will go well with you and you will live long in the land. God promises the good life to the next generation as long as they honor their fathers and now, we're not entering into a physical land as members of the church. It's not what Paul is saying here, but he is, by principle, emphasizing that God's blessing is upon those children, that generation that honors their parents by obeying them. That's still true. If children want the good life, they will not find it ultimately by going their own way, by going the way of their peers, going the way of a celebrity who, quote, has it all, but rather by showing their obedience to God by obeying their Anything less than that, and they're selling themselves short, robbing themselves of the blessing of God. Now, certainly as you get older, your relationship with your parents change. How you obey this command changes. I think that idea of honoring your parents, honor your father and mother, is intentionally given to, to kind of more broadly encapsulate all of what it means to care for your parents, particularly as they get older. We could talk about that, but... The point is, for most children, as Paul was directing this message to children who were still under the authority of their parents, in the home, in the, within the, con the context of the church, 
His desire for them is to be obedient. And the focus is on their obedience and response to their parents. Now getting back to our text, again, the point is that they children ought to obey their parents. Those children who are in the context of a Christian home. Second point in our text is directed to parents. Parents are to raise their children in the instruction of the Lord. Again, chapter 6, verse 4 reads, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And again, the pattern in this section in Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 9, is to address the three couplets, three different relationships within the home. All three sections he addresses, the role within the relationship who's given the charge to submit first, and then he addresses the role that has a responsibility, responsibility to lead or have authority second. In this case, children were addressed first, and parents are here addressed second. As I mentioned earlier, Paul calls out fathers in this text because it is ultimately the role of the fathers to be the head of the household. It is the role of the father to be set apart and to lead and have primary responsibility for the growth, development, discipline, and instruction of their children. Clearly, mothers have a significant role to play in that process. You know, Paul affirmed both Lois and Eunice. Lois was Timothy's mother. Eunice was his grandmother. He affirmed their role in Timothy's life as something that was good and a blessing. So certainly Paul would understand here that it's not just fathers who have that role to play in the lives of their, their children, but ultimately the responsibility falls on the fathers in terms of overall accountability. The buck stops there. And I'll say that this means that it is our responsibility, men, whenever there is quote-unquote trouble in paradise, right, to see to it that the relationship of your wife and your children is as it should be. It is your responsibility to ensure that your children are honoring your wife, that your wife is caring for your children appropriately, that whatever relational issues may be present are addressed, prayed for, or nurtured. I say this because I've seen many men sit idly by while their wives are disrespected for the, by their children. Or conversely, while their mothers are overwhelmed and parenting out of a state of frustration and taking that frustration out on their children. Biblically, it is not okay for men to be content with simply being the breadwinner, coming home, checking out after the wife, checking out for the rest of the day while the wife, whether she has a job outside of the home or not, has full responsibility for the children. Fathers must be fully present. They must take responsibility, overall responsibility, for what happens in the home. And again, this doesn't mean they do it all. It doesn't mean they it does mean that they see parenting, the nurturing and development of the children as a significant part of their responsibility as fathers, husbands, heads of their home. Moreover, God has called our Heavenly Father. Right? Thus, God intends for us to learn something about Him through the pattern set by our earthly fathers. Jesus sets this pattern in the Sermon on the Mount in referring to earthly fathers who give good gifts to their children, and He reasons from that if earthly fathers give good gifts to their children, certainly your Heavenly Father gives something great. Right. So He's setting a pattern there. Children should be able to learn something from their earthly fathers about their heavenly father. Likewise, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this analogy as he discusses discipline in Hebrews 12. If our earthly fathers disciplined us, and that was a good thing, certainly our heavenly father disciplines us. Yeah. And that's better. Paul calls out fathers here for these reasons, but again, we can easily apply this admonition to parents in general, both the fathers and mothers. Both have an impact on their children's lives. Both are responsible to ensure that their children are brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
Again, while children were earlier given one clear command, obey your parents, parents are given two here in our text. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The first, do not provoke your children to anger, should be fairly self-explanatory. Another translation says, do not exasperate your children. In a parallel passage, Paul says in Colossians 3, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Ultimately, that is what is at stake. That is the kind of parenting, there is a kind of parenting that leads to angry, exasperated children. Children who lose heart, who become disheartened, disengaged, who turn off their ears when you begin to talk about God, a God who loves them, sacrificed himself for them, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. How is a child going to hear that about God if they don't see that from you? If your parenting makes them angry, of course, we're all responsible for, their act, for our actions. Children will be responsible for their actions. But if we are the offenders, if our parenting makes them angry and we are the offenders, then that has clear gospel implications. R. Kent Hughes offers a number of ways that parents may exasperate their children. Number one, unreasonableness. Asking things beyond a child's capacity. This could be age, ability, or even giftedness. Are you hounding your child to be the sports star that you always wanted to be when they'd rather just be sewing? Right. right? This may also manifest itself in placing more stringent boundaries on a child who's grown, grown beyond it. When you think about boundaries, boundaries should be expanding as a child gets older, right? You're not going to keep a 2-year-old and a 17-year-old in the same place. You're not going to have the same restrictions on their life. Those restrictions should be expanding as they get older and more mature. And you should be teaching them so that they can be more, more mature to handle more things. Unreasonableness. How about fault-finding? Always criticizing and never encouraging. Do you find yourself correcting your child constantly about everything? That may not be their fault. Or maybe because you're being too picky. But it's often on the little things. How about neglect? Never tending to your child's needs, real or perceived. It is important to give attention to perceived needs. If only for the fact that you have to help them to understand the difference between real and perceived needs. But you should give attention to those things. How about inconsistency? That could mean being one way one moment and not that way the next moment. Or it could be being one way with one child and not that way with the other child. Just ask Joseph about that. The reality is that sometimes we parent the way we do and we exasperate our children the way we do because that, that is what was modeled to us. Often we fall into that mode of thinking without knowing it. That's why one of the reasons why it's good to have a father and mother in the home to help balance out those issues, to talk through those issues, to make sure we aren't defaulting to whatever our parents did, to make sure there's a balanced approach to how we parent and how we care for children. Maybe you don't think any of those things describe you, or you're not sure. Do any of those things describe the way your parents raised you? If it does, chances are you're probably doing the same things. This is also why it's good to have these conversations in the context of the church. Presumably parents in the church all want the same thing, and they're all striving for the same things. Perhaps we will do them a little differently from home to home, but we all want to develop 
the same kind of character in our children so we can hold one another accountable. Again, this was written to the whole church. This wasn't just a, a, a segment of a letter that was cut out from the rest of the letter and only hand-delivered to people who were parents in the church. This was written to the whole congregation. And so people like many of you who don't have young children in the home were hearing the same thing read to them so that you can help keep those who do have young children in the home accountable and so that you can encourage them and so that you can build them up so that you don't just check out when this passage of scripture is being read because you don't have young children in the home because it's still your responsibility as members of the body of Christ. One of the problems I see in parenting and home life in general and that often leads to a lot of issues is that we just don't talk about it. We don't talk about the struggles we have in the home. We're very individualistic. We tend to think that our problems are our problems and no one else struggles with our problems so we have to keep them a secret because we have to look a certain way and we don't want anyone to know and we suffer in silence. And that's just foolish. Because we all have struggles. My wife and I have struggled, prayed, and cried through many parenting conversations over the years. And one of the most helpful things for us has been having, being in the context of, of other believers who struggle with the same things and who could talk us through it and pray us through it. Again, do not provoke your children to anger. You want to give them as much opportunity as possible to learn and embrace the gospel, which will not likely happen if they're angry with you constantly. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word for discipline means the act of providing guidance for responsible living, upbringing, training, instruction. It's translated in different English versions with the words discipline, nurture, and training. There's an activity involved, an intentionality involved. There's a disciplined, decisive approach, a forward-looking, forward-thinking intentionality about this kind of training. The pastor from our previous church who himself was intentional about family discipleship within the church, always encouraged parents to start as you plan to go. It may sound a bit cryptic, but the emphasis was on as you plan to go, or rather looking down the road, what do you want to see in your children? What kind of character? What kind of person do you want them to be? Whatever that is, start your parenting, conduct your parenting with that in mind. In other words, if you want for them to be other-centered and not self-centered, then you should start parenting them at a young age to be considerate of others. Having a baby requires being flexible with your schedule, and yet babies can also learn to be flexible. So instead of always rearranging your schedule to suit the baby's needs, adjust the baby's schedule to suit your family's needs. Work on that. For younger children, teach them that getting out of their beds at night and jumping into mom and dad's beds is not considerate of mom and dad. We had a no-fly policy in our beds for our children. Teach your children that taking a toy from their sibling or friend is not acceptable just because you're in the terrible twos. It's not acceptable because it's inconsiderate to your sibling or friend. Teach your children that interrupting grown-ups' conversations to tell mom and dad a funny story may be cute, but it's inconsiderate. And they're not the center of the universe. Start as you plan to go. It's the same principle as train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they're older, they will not depart from it. That's a proverb, which is generally true. Start as you plan to go. That first term, discipline. The second one is instruction. This term is a term related to the word from which we get our English idea of euthetic counseling. You may never have heard of that before. But it's used in Christian circles, some Christian circles, to describe biblical counseling. 
I'm using it in that general sense. The word itself has a meaning to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct, admonition, or instruction. So there's intentionality here. There's an element of warning, cautioning, pleading to avoid or see certain actions. There's a lot of overlap between the two terms, but I think the distinction, if there were a distinction, would be that the first term is more of an intentional consideration of who you should be. The second term may be more of an intentional consideration of things you should not do, a cautioning against living this way or that. In other words, our parenting has to involve not only a warning against, or else constantly telling your children how they shouldn't be, but it also must involve a forward-looking, intentional training to direct children in the way they should be. It's not just correction, it's also direction. We are to bring them up, raise them, nourish them on these things. Intentional, active training. Warning, cautioning, pleading. Both in the correction and direction of the Lord. Effective, biblical parenting involves both. In case it's not clear by now, it is not the responsibility of the state to teach your children about life or how to live. It's not the responsibility of the school system to teach your children about life, how to live, about sex, about what it means to be male and female. It's not the responsibility of your child to figure it out on their own, nor could they. Certainly not the responsibility of the church to teach your children how to live. It is your responsibility, parents, to teach your children how to live, what life is all about, what their responsibility is before God. A lot more that we could say here. I don't want to keep you all day. Again, Paul says to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, in the direction and correction of the Lord. Start as you plan to go. The family is a training ground for children to prepare them to be adults who live life for the glory of God in his world and hopefully eventually in his church. So the thought is, how can you prepare them? I want to leave you with some biblical principles to be teaching your children. And as I said before, I want to encourage all of you here today, whether you have young children or not, to be thinking about this, because you have other people in your lives who have young children who need to hear this and who could be encouraged by this. A number of principles, I'm going to kind of run through these, um, just because I think we're, we're just about out of time, unless I can get another hour. <laughs> teach them that they live in God's world and so ought to abide by his word and seek to please him above all others including above their own desires teach them this often in any way you can teach them that living in God's world is not just a Sunday morning thing we don't just, just talk about it on Sunday morning or when we go to Awana or have you know, vacation Bible school Again, the passage from Deuteronomy 6, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and all your might. These words shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. All the time. Every aspect of life needs to be brought in subjection to the word of God. You do that for your children. Teach them that they belong to God. He made them. He made them in his image. Genesis 1 through 3. He made them male and female. He made them for one another, males for females, in his way. That is his way. And he blesses us when we live his way. And we are made in his image, and that's what makes us special. Male and female. That's what makes life precious. We belong to him. That's, why, that's the reason why we should keep our bodies pure. 
Because our bodies belong to him ultimately, to do with as he pleases. We know from our passage we need to teach them to obey. Teach them also to respond well to correction. That's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 11. Correction is given in love. Discipline is given in love. If you're not disciplining plenty in love, then you need to correct that yourselves. But so long as you are disciplining in love, you want to encourage your children to be able to respond well to correction. Teach them to endure affliction. I would love to be able to keep my children from all affliction and all harm. But we can't do that. That's not our role. It's in our job. It's not in our power. Teach them how to endure affliction. How to lean on the Lord. How to rest in his promises. How to cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Teach them how to pray. And to plead with the Lord for help when they need it. Teach them to be able to stand alone for the truth. Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. Teach them that emotions and physical appetites should not rule over them or be the standard for what is right. Teach them to be hard workers. I love this one in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 13. Paul says, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Amen. I love that one. <laughs> I'm just, I'm messing with my girls right now just because they asked me. <laughs> I mean, it is a standing rule in our home. So. <laughs> Teach them to know the difference between, and, and this is work, by the way. I'll just say this is work that impacts others. It's not just work for your own benefit. This is work for the good of the family. Because, again, that's going to relate to them growing up and being a part of the church family and understanding their responsibility there and that there's work to be done for the benefit of others. Start as you plan to go. Teach them to know the difference between wisdom and foolishness and to desire wisdom. That's all of the Proverbs. Teach them to be others-centered generally. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility of mind, count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Build that into your children. And if you don't know what else to teach them, just look up the one another's in Scripture and teach them those things. Teach them to love one another, to pray for one another, to tell the truth to one another, to be kind to one another, to serve one another, to be patient with one another, to comfort one another, to forgive one another, to be generous and give to one another, to outdo one another in giving honor. And if you can't teach them anything else and you don't feel capable, teach them the gospel. Your children should not leave out of the home from under your guidance and care without having heard the gospel from you. Amen. Not the pastor, not the deacon, not the Sunday school teacher, you. Right. Right. Again, a Christian place, Christian home is a place where children obey in obedience to the Lord, where parents raise and in the instruction of the Lord. The world is becoming increasingly more hostile to this truth. We have to make sure that we stand on that truth. I'll leave you with a quote here. The raising of children can seem an eternity when you're in the midst of it, but when it's over, it seems but a season. Growing up seems to take forever when you're 12, but when you're 40, it seems like the throb of a cocoon. Those of us who have raised children say, where did the time go? But whatever your perspective, we need to understand that this is a time when lives are made and broken. 
referring to the time in the home. One more quote. Therefore, he urges us, just looking at that passage, he urges us that they should be brought up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This means that above all else, they should learn to fear the Lord and thus be taught to reject their natural inclinations, to be always suspicious of accepting whatever enters their heads, and to accept the guidance they need without complaining. No one can come to a life worthy of God unless he leaves behind the life he was born with. I like that. Teach your children to leave behind the life they were born with. Not to make it better, not to dress it up, but to leave it behind in favor of new life. 